This is episode number 12, Why You Must Tell Your Story with Honoré Cordeur. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohi, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who've overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. She said, it was hard to stay quiet. Her body was constantly covered with bruises. Her home was one of fear and abuse. Her father was the man responsible for it all. Others knew, but no one spoke up. It left her no other option but to speak up for herself. During her sophomore year of high school, she was finally removed from her abusive household and placed into foster care. Foster kid, a term that she could only imagine before, was now part of her identity. Without further ado, please welcome Honoree Cordeur. Thank you so much for joining us here today. If you don't mind, I would like to start off by having you share a little bit about your background, your upbringing, your relationship with your parents, and anything else that you may find relevant for our listeners. Well, I was uh, raised by advanced degreed professionals in Ohio. So both my mom and my dad had college degrees and then advanced college degrees, and my mom had her doctorate in psychology, which is a little ironic. Um, and my dad was, had a couple of master's degrees, was a, a school counselor, psychologist, um, and coach, mm. but he had been raised by an alcoholic. So while he had, um, obviously gone down the path of working on himself, he did not, um, he still had some, some issues and he was very physically abusive to me. And so I was, um, from about the time I was seven, I took some pretty tough physical abuse um, from him. And ultimately, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was removed from my parents' home and put in foster care when I was so severely beaten that I had multiple bone fractures and, and that sort of thing. So I was in a foster home for a while, but I think I'm a bit older than you. So this was in the 80s. This was in the early 80s, early to mid 80s. And back then, the culture of the foster care system was we, if you have parents and they are willing to take you back, we give you a cooling off period, a little bit of therapy, and then we reunite you with you, reunite you with your family. So my foster, go ahead. I was going to say, how did you end up getting into the foster care system? Was it someone that ended up speaking up on your behalf? Yeah. yeah so the, so um, I'm not sure what the system is like today, but back then um, people could notice you were being abused, but unless the child said something, nothing would happen. And so um, I was actually in a class where we were required to journal. And so that's where I wrote everything down. And finally, my 
teacher asked me directly if I was being abused. And I said, yes, because I had my face was bruised, (laughs) you know, it was apparent. And so that it was that day. So they took immediate action, but not until I actually said something. So I had come to school many, many times bruised and um, just covered it up. So I wouldn't dress out for gym class, but so my gym teacher um, would, you would get, you could not dress out once and you would get a B. And if you didn't dress out twice, you would get a C. And so you could see how after a few days I was failing the semester. But then my gym teacher caught on to what was going on and made me her assistant. And she's like, you know, you don't have to dress out if you're my assistant. And I was like, sweet, <laughs> that'll be great. Um, so there were many people who knew, but they didn't say anything. They weren't able to say something. That was the law at the time is that the child had to say something. And I didn't know that. I kept thinking, why are all these adults so clueless <laughs> as to what's happening? Um, so in any event, after 90 days, I was returned to my parents. And of course, everything was fine for a minute. And then um, I ended up leaving again. And this time I was in a children's home for uh, 90 days. And then I was returned to my family again. And then the last time that I left, I just never went home again. I just went and lived with a friend until I finished high school. Do you have any recommendations for people who are currently experiencing abuse within their household? Talk to someone about it. Because I think now the the there are many resources, although I'm sure the system is as broken or flawed as it was when I was growing up. But if someone is listening to this and they are experiencing abuse, their only option is to talk about it and to continue to talk about it until they are put somewhere where they are safe. Hmm. I'm, I'm also wondering about the fact that so when you had first shared the fact that you were abused with your teacher, first couple questions, first is what kind of relationship did you have with the teacher? And then the second is, did you ever fear that the fact that the teacher may tell your parents directly about what you had told her, and then you would be the one Mm -hmm. suffering the consequences? Or what was going through your mind as you were sharing that experience? Well, I was in a a small class. It was a special class that I was in. So I was fairly close to that teacher. Um, I was actually afraid for my teacher. I thought if my teacher told my parents, my dad would take action against her. Mm. I was more afraid for her than for me. Where, where would you say, so uh, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was a lot of the work that you were doing, but I wanted to take a step back and understand where did the entrepreneurial drive come from originally? Well, you know, this is a conundrum, right, or, or a kind of a, an interesting twist to the story is that my parents were advanced degree professionals, but my dad had an entrepreneurial spirit, and I learned many wonderful things from him, including um, a phrase that I use, which is if you're working for someone, you're working for the man, basically you're working for the pharaoh, someone's going to get rich, but it's not you. whenever possible, figure out a way to work for yourself. That was one of the beneficial and valuable lessons that I took away from, from living with my parents. And 
I think that's where the drive came from is I heard that message and I heard if you work for someone else, they're going to be wealthy and in control of your life and their life, but you won't. Um, for better or worse, I, I took that message to heart and also noticed that it was true. <laughs> I worked for a lot of people and they seem to have a lot more uh, freedom and flexibility than I did. I'm always curious to know about that subject because whenever I get asked this question or I used to, you know, I had a hard time pinpointing where my drive actually came from. And then it finally started to make sense after a while that it all kind of um, snowballed from the early days of learning how to survive on the street and mm. learning how to cope with different things that were happening in the household. Um, so now when, you know, that question comes up, that those are the things I always go back to. So it always fascinates me when people can relate back to the, you know, early memories that they would have with yeah. their father or their mother um, and then how those things triggered certain things in your mind to go after it in a different way when a problem comes up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're always filtering and learning and adjusting, right? Our brains are, are meant to make us survive. So you learn things from your, you know, your acts of survival as I did, as we all do. One of the works that we came across, or I guess your involvement with was the miracle morning. And so that's a practice that I've been, I guess, doing myself for quite some time. And I came across it actually by accident, or I guess for a reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> everything happens for a reason. So, and I wanted to know what is your involvement within that? And how did you first ac come across those principles? So I have been practicing my own version of the Miracle Morning long before I read the book, The Miracle Morning. Um, if you are a person who seeks success, I believe that you would come across these behavior practices and, and what we're talking about, um, for anyone who doesn't know, are the lifesavers that are talked about in the book, The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. So the, the savers, uh, is an acronym for the practices. So silence or meditation, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, or scribing, or another word for journaling. So if you're in pursuit of success at all, you're going to uh, come across someone saying, you know what, something that really works for me is meditation, or I always get in my workout every morning, or I visualize myself, you know, success, or I say a mantra, an affirmation every day. You're going to hear about these different um, uh, practices from different people. Um, I came across the Miracle Morning because I'm a reader and I study success, so I tend to read the all of the books. <laughs> I get a notification that there's a new book. Daniel Pink re released a new book yesterday and, and I'm going to get it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have my favorite authors and I, I love to read and I'm always reading and listening to audiobooks, And so that is a no brainer. So I discovered the miracle morning. It was recommended to me on Amazon. I read the book. And as I was reading the book, I'm thinking I, absolutely could have written this book, except I didn't die. I Hal has the cooler story, the cooler, uh, a triumph, triumph, a story of triumph. Um, but I felt like I could absolutely have written that book. And I thought that it was a very valuable book at the time I was still doing business and executive coaching. And I started recommending the books to my clients and I wrote a review for the miracle morning. 
and Hal saw my review. What I didn't know is that he was looking to turn the Miracle Morning in, into, in part, as part of his business, his vision for his business into a book series. And I had written the successful single mom book series. And when I wrote the review for him, he went and looked me up and saw that I had a series and he wanted a series. And so he reached out and said, I want a series. You have a series. Let's have a conversation. And we decided to partner to create, co-create um, the Miracle Morning book series. And we originally started just as, hey, I don't know you that well. You don't know me that well. Let's go one book at a time and see how it works out. And we just published the Miracle Morning Companion Planner um, just a few weeks ago. And I think it was book 14, 13, 14, something like that. That's amazing. What are the chances of that happening, right? Um, well, you said right by accident or for a reason, we don't really know, but, um, so in any event, I, I now am the co-creator of the Miracle Morning book series and I run that business for Hal. Tell me a little bit about, I know you're a huge proponent of some of people writing their books. Why do you think others should write a book? Oh gosh, because, um, if, especially if you're an entrepreneur or you want to have a foothold or a position in any particular um, business path, right? Any profession, um, having a book sets you head and shoulders above other people who do what you do or who say they do what you do. It's very interesting, right? There's varying levels of experience and um, uh actual hands-on success um, that people have. And um, I have found that the one thing that separates someone from the rest of the field is a book. Uh, it is um, a great replacement for a brochure or a business card. Um, it allows someone insight into your personality and how you work and your level and area of uh, level of expertise in your particular area and whether you have some. <laughs> You have some or a lot. Um, uh, gosh, I, there's so many reasons that I feel like someone should write a book. I think I'm so passionate about it because that was the advice that was given to me and I took it and it changed my life for the better in so many ways. Um, I also know that there are, are lots of people who run around saying that they're really good at what they do and that they're the expert in their field. And a book leaves no doubt because author is generally the first thing that someone would say author and then veterinarian or heart mm -hmm. surgeon or you know actor or whatever and so uh, very few things are above and beyond being an author now there are some right like super bowl champion or um olympic gold medalist those are some that are right up there and why why do you think they are why, why are those titles higher than an author? Oh, because they are so incredibly challenging to achieve. You have to have a, a very special, I was trying to explain to my daughter when we were watching, you know, the, the finals of a football game that every single one of the players represents thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of little boys who played football from the time they were, you know, knee high to a grasshopper and wanted to play football um, and now you've got the pro team. And so each one of those players represents thousands or tens of thousands of, of players. 
right? So it's like a filter down system. Mm-hmm. You have to be really good and then really good and then really good and then the best. It's like how many quarterbacks are there? There are 26 teams, so there are like 75 quarterbacks, period. At least. <laughs> right? But I mean like there are 75 pro quarterbacks because you got the main guy and then the two backup guys. That's it. Yep. And only one of them gets to take it all. And only one of them, right, gets to be the Super Bowl champion. So when there's there are very few things that are, in my opinion, that are, that kind of stand out more than being an author. But being an author is something that anyone can achieve because if you don't write it yourself, you can get the help of someone to write it with you or even write it for you. Lots of people are best-selling authors and they've never written a word. Mm. <laughs> But you can still become an author and your book can be about what it is that you know. You don't necessarily have to be a writer in order to become an author. Do do you think becoming an author, uh, so I'm curious to know, is it more, is there more than um, essentially your reputation, whether that's in business or anywhere else? Is there something else that you've been able to discover for yourself as you were telling your story, whether that was healing, new discoveries, things that helped you along the way and not necessarily, you know, giving you the rights or the the title to get yourself into certain doors? Oh, you're talking about the personal journey of someone. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've written about being a single mom because I was one. I've written about divorce because I've, I got to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um I was a business and executive coach for a long time and I worked with people to help them to become more effective and efficient and to develop networks, um, to develop a a strong bench of other professionals so that their um, businesses would grow easier and faster than if they um, were trying to just do things haphazardly. And so I wrote books about those different types of topics. And all along the way, I was... helping others and myself as well from it's a cathartic experience, especially if you're writing about something personal. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's a, it's a process. Um, I'm actually experiencing myself right now as I'm putting together a book of my own. And what I would like to know from you is more so about the process of putting it together. So one of the things that I come across is that, you know, as people are, are trying to put together their work, it seems very intimidating so for anyone who's listening and thinks that the process is intimidating, how can they make it less intimidating? Well, so I have um, two books that are helpful that would answer all of your questions. One is You Must Write a Book, which is all the reasons why you must write a book. And then I, t- but there's a lot of advice in there. And after, you know, I'd sold 10,000 copies, I had gotten dozens and dozens of requests for a checklist. Like, okay, wait, <laughs> there's so much. What do I do and when do I do it? So I wrote the companion workbook. I must write my book. And then I have um, a three book series with Ben Hale, who is a successful fiction writer. So if someone listening is like, I want to write a book, but I want to write a story. Mm -hmm. Um, He and I wrote these books together. They're the Like a Boss series. So it's Write Like a Boss, um, which is based around if you're writing and you want to write, if you want to write one book or you want to write lots of books, i.e. be a full-time writer, there's a different thought process. Um, if you're doing anything from a pro- professional standpoint, there's the professional piece 
that a lot of people don't consider. So if I'm a painter, but I'm a, I paint as a hobby, I paint when I feel like it. So if I feel like painting this afternoon, when we're done talking, I go pick up a brush and I, and I do a little watercolor, but if I don't feel like it, no harm, no foul. Right. Mm. Yep. But if I'm a writer and I'm a full-time writer and I want to make a living from my writing, doesn't matter if I feel like it or not, <laughs> I have to write anyway. <laughs> so we teach people in that book uh, how to add in the professional part of it. And then we did publish like a boss, which are all the questions around how do you publish a book that looks and feels and reads professionally, uh, like it's been professionally produced, like say by a traditional publisher so that you don't come across as an amateur, you don't make amateur mistakes and that you would then be able to sell the book. And then finally the book that's coming out in a couple of weeks, the last in the trilogy is market like a boss, which is once you've written and published your book or books, then how do you sell them? Mm -hmm. so like the, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so those, those are the two pieces. And then finally, I wrote Prosperity for Writers. And there's four books in the Prosper, five books in the Prosperous Writer series, because a big component of being able to be a full-time writer is to believe that you can from a money standpoint. So we tackle, I have a different co-author, Brian Meeks is a full-time fiction writer, and he's a data guy. So he used to be a data analyst for Geico. So he explains how to read your data and how to understand the metrics of your business. Um, and we have three books in that out of that five book series together. So it's how do you develop our daily writing habit? How do you understand the money of your business? In other words, the data and placing ads and those sorts of things. And how do you know if an ad's working? Like some of the more complex part of it. And then um, the last one is the Prosperous Writer's Guide to Finding Readers. So how do you find readers for your book, which is different from Market Like a Boss, very different marketing and, and finding readers, uh, all of the same topic in a way, very different perspectives in those books. So between all of those books, five, three, ten, uh, eight, to 10 total books, I, I've answered pretty much any question anyone would have about a particular aspect of their writing publishing and marketing, you know, their, their books. How do you not lose the creative side throughout all of this? Because I can imagine, you know, and just like you said, as you're putting together a book, there's so many different aspects of it that you have to consider. Well, I guess it depends if you're writing it for yourself <laughs> or, if, yeah. or if you're trying to make a business out of it. But let's say for, you know, this sake is that you're trying to make a business out of it. So you have to obviously use strategy, you know, planning every chapter, oh. how you're going to market and everything. But how do you still maintain that creative drive so that at the end, let's say, you know, you don't hit some of your goals as far as sales or speaking gigs or whatever it is. And yet you're still able to step back and say, well, that's still who I am. I'm still a gifted writer or whatever it is. And I'm still going to pursue with it. Um, well, it's an interesting question, right? Because because you're talking about one side of it, which is um, the creative piece, which is where do my ideas come from and how do I make sure I have lots and lots of ideas, right? Uh -huh. And then you're talking about another side of it, which is the tr strategic piece, which is when I'm writing something, how do I make sure that what I'm writing is effective and points in the right direction. And you've hit upon something that most people completely miss the entire time, 
usually until they have a conversation with me. <laughs> so I, I get a lot of people who will either email me or call me or whatever. If they've read, you must write a book. So I get, I, I do uh, paid consulting. And so people will reach out and they'll hire me and they'll say, okay, I'm 80% of the way done with my book. And after our conversation, they re realize that they're 8% of the way done with their book because what they didn't do, yes, it's unfortunate, but what they didn't do is ask themselves some very important questions before they started writing, which is where does this book fit into my business hmm. and what do I want the book to do for me? So there are two quick examples I can give. One is I don't care to um, make any money from this book, from book sales, I want this book to be a lead generator for me. So I had a guy who called me and he said, look, when I engage a client, they're $5,000 a month for five years. So I don't care so much, right? Which is 60,000 uh, 60, a year, 300,000 for five years. Mm -hmm. So he, every book that he would hand out to a prospective client could return him $300,000. So he certainly didn't care if they paid him the 15 bucks or 20 bucks for the book. He was using that as his business card. He wanted a professionally produced book because a book is better than a brochure, but he wasn't going to put it up on Amazon for a couple of reasons. One, he didn't want to make the book available on Amazon, number one. And number two, because his knowledge is very specialized, so he wanted it to really be going to someone who could hire him. And the second thing was he's geographically undesirable for 99% of the world. So his clients are right in his backyard. So it didn't make sense for him to worry about publishing it on Amazon and having it in multiple formats and doing an audiobook and all of the options, right? It was just basically like, I want a paperback version that's high, it's high quality, very well done. And, you know, it doesn't need to be X number of pages or words or whatever. It needs to be what I need it to be. Mm -hmm. That's one option. Then we have people who are publishing books who are saying, look, I want to put it on Amazon. I want it to get me speaking engagements or I want it to get me consulting gigs and I am geographically available to go anywhere. And so I want my book to be available anywhere. There are people that are breathing, <laughs> which is everywhere. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, so no. if there's that strategic, those questions that have to be asked in advance of even writing the first word, because how do you even know what to write about? So people will sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write a book about X and they go bleh and they throw up on the page and they don't think about what is the order that these things need to go in and yeah. where am I, to, where am I trying to take the reader? And then let's go one step further. What do I want the reader to do as a result of reading my book? And what do I want them to not do as a result of reading my book? So I wrote, you must write a book for several reasons. But one of them was, I think everyone should write a book. You must write a book, right? The title of the book. Mm -hmm. What you must not do is write a crappy book. Do not write and publish a crappy book because I see it done. I, I saw it done before I wrote the book and I thought it would solve the problem. It didn't. <laughs> so I still see people writing and publishing crappy books. And then they wonder why they don't sell, why the book isn't performing for them in the way they want it to, yada, yada, yada. And it's because they don't ask these questions in advance and they're in a big hurry to do it as cheaply as possible. And they're not thinking about the long-term opportunity that they have with a book in, ter in terms of the content and the, just all of the possibilities that a book could bring to their business. So it sounds like you have gone through an experience of your, of your own, obviously, to get all, all this together, to understand how it all works. When you had first released your first book, did you have the same 
mindset and approach or was that the learning point? Well, every single book has given me a lesson, right? So when I first started publishing books, people were not self-publishing books for the most part. I started self-publishing in 2004, which is about eight years before people say that self-publishing actually started. So I, I had to, I made all of the mistakes and figured them out along the way because people, someone would point out something like, Oh, you have a typo in the back cover or you, you missed there are too many. You, you didn't have the book edited. Didn't you know you were supposed to have an editor? I was like, Oh, I, but I took English in school. <laughs> <laughs> that should be enough, right? Yes, that should be enough. No, no, that's not enough. We all need editors and, and different levels of editors and proofreaders and those sorts of things. How acceptable, I'm assuming at this point you are um, very acceptable of it, but how acceptable were you of criticism prior <laughs> to your first, whether that was your first work or just in general? You know what? I, I, I'm okay with criticism. I, it's not, I try to encourage people to be okay with criticism a lot of people look at their books as their babies, right? Like mm -hmm. my book is my baby and I don't want anyone to criticize me or give me feedback. And it, I always say your book is a piece of your business. So mm -hmm. if you, if you made, you know, you had an ice cream shop and you made a new ice cream flavor and people didn't like it, you wouldn't be like, Oh my gosh, I'm a terrible person. I should kill myself because no one likes pistachio, you know, raisin, mm -hmm. right? You would just go, okay, it's not a popular flavor. People aren't buying it. Moving on. When you're putting together a book, the whole, the whole reason I'm an author is because editors and proofreaders exist. I come up with the good bit of the content, and then I have a team of people who, I, who review my work and go through it and then give me feedback on it. And being okay with the feedback and having someone say you have a typo means you have a typo. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean I'm a bad or I'm stupid. It's I have a typo. So when I get my book books back and I have more than 30 books that I've written and published myself, and then I've done lots of collaborations, like the ones with Hal, and I have clients that I've helped publish their books. So I've done this, you know, 50 times, more than 50 times. And every single time a manuscript comes back, every single time, it looks like a crime scene. It looks like my English teacher had three shots of vodka and a red pen and went to town. And that's, that's the truth because I just write from a place of what's the message I'm trying to convey to my reader and I let the editor do their job. So people think, oh, you must have clean manuscripts. And every single time I'm like, you know what? I think this one's pretty clean. <laughs> I get it back and it's not that clean. <laughs> and so you have to just be okay with not being perfect and letting people give you the benefit of their experience and knowledge and expertise. And that makes your book better. That makes your business better. It makes your, your life better, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's something that I've, I've been fortunate enough to learn kind of along the way, just with everything you do always accept, you know, you'll obviously have some, I guess you could say bad criticism. And what I mean by that is just, people who may not understand what it is that you're trying to communicate and yet you still receive advice. So, you know, I have come across numerous people who have said, well, how do you do this? How do I do that? And I said, you know, I honestly can't, I'm not qualified to give an opinion because I, right. I, I don't know what it is that you're trying to build and how you were trying to build it. But I, I do agree with you. I think criticism is probably 
one of the more important things that you need to have as you're building anything, your life. Yes. The ability to, to, and it's not always criticism. Hopefully, hopefully Mm -hmm. at some point, someone's going to tell you that you did a great job. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing a great job. Hey, your English is great. I don't know any Russian. So, and I would, and I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know a, that you were not born and raised in the U S or that you spoke a different language, which I bet is a, is a super, um, secret weapon to have. It could be. Yes. Um, it, it comes. So I, I don't use it that often. I use it primarily to communicate with my family that I still have mm. there. Um, yeah. I, I don't use it as a tool for business or anything. At least I haven't. I haven't figured out. Um, I, I've thought of some ways to do it, but it hasn't come to that point yet. Well, I can just imagine if you're in the airport and people are speaking in Russian, they you don't know what they're they're saying. Like that would be amazing, just mm-hmm. to kind of sit there and be like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh huh. I totally know what you're saying. <laughs> by the by the minute translation, that's a that's a good business right there. Yes, by the minute translation. Well, and and also, um, y- you could then pick up other languages because now you are able to have two in your head mm-hmm. and. And so I would imagine with speaking a, a new language would be less difficult for you. Yes, po- possibly. Well, I can't say yes fully. It, it, it's a possibility. That's what I've learned from kind of just reading and listening to other people who speak multiple languages. Um, yeah. I also, just like you said before, I think there has to be a purpose for sure. when you learn it. So, And I haven't figured out a purpose yet to learn another language. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Um, you had mentioned the fact how you published clo- thirty books, right, or close to thirty? Oh, more than thirty. I stopped. It. I stopped counting at thirty. I think that sounds good, right? Why? Why so many? Um, I just have more to say. <laughs> mm. Um. Um. Well, so. I wrote my first book because someone said, you're, you you must write a book, right? You're a coach and a speaker. You must write a book. That's why I wrote the first book. I wrote the single mom books because I was a single mom and there was a stigma around being a single mom. So anytime I would talk about my daughter, people would say, you don't talk about your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. And the immediate reaction would be like, aw, right? Like somehow that I needed to be felt sorry for kind of like foster kids. Mm -hmm. Oh, you were a foster kid. It's like, yeah. And that makes me a superhero. So stand back. (laughs) Um, so I wrote the, the single mom books and then, um, just every book along the way, there was a calling for it. There was a reason for me to write that book. And I also got the fever. I like it. I like writing. And then I decided I wanted to be a full-time writer and, and to be a full-time writer, you don't write one book and then put your feet up and go to the beach. Mm-hmm. Continuous practice sounds like it. Correct. Correct. I want to jump back to a subject which you are, I would say, uh, an expert in, and that is leadership within your own space. What would you say defines a great leader? Someone who is the leader of themselves first. Mm. So the best leaders are someone who have leadership of self, which means they take full responsibility. They're they're, um, employing constant and never-ending improvement. They're working on themselves. Um, 
I think that then engenders one to be a good leader of others. Interesting. Now, did, did you have people like that when you were younger or is that um, a group of people that you came across as you kind of moved out on your own and started pursuing what it is that you wanted to do? Well, it came out of necessity. Like I didn't want to be broke or working for someone else or struggling. So my life has been a study in what's effective and what's ineffective. Mm -hmm. So when something is working, like, oh, how can I make more money? Hmm. Okay, well, I've, I can go make more money, but there's psychology behind it, right? Thus the Prosperity for Writers series. Like I saw people were writing good books, but they didn't believe they could make money as a writer. Therefore, they didn't. There's the psychology piece. So I worked a lot on the psychology piece. Hmm. What's, how do, how do you get the most out of your day? How do you get so much done? Well, you have to be effective and efficient with your time. Well, how do you do that? Will you study that? <laughs> right. You study how other people do it. And then you turn the mirror on yourself and, and study yourself so that you can get better. Mm -hmm. Replicate. I, when I say you, I mean, yes. Yeah. So it's like, well, well, what, what, what do people who get a lot done? What do they do? <laughs> They block their time. They use the do not disturb function on their phone, <laughs> right? They, they practice the lifesavers from the miracle morning, right? It's, meditators tend to get more done. People who are in shape and are fit and exercise tend to be more efficient and effective and get more done if only because they don't get the flu, mm -hmm. right? Like they're, they're not sick. They stay healthy. So it's studying each aspect of what makes someone successful as they as they define success for themselves. Very interesting. A uh, couple of uh, couple of thoughts to close out this episode. First one is in a situation where odds are completely against you. What are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Oh, gosh. Um, what a great question. I think that's the best question I've ever been asked. Um, so th thank you for that. Um, when I feel like I am against the odds, I have learned to get quiet. Um, because I believe we all have a very small but wise voice within us. And we know what to do. But you have to tune out all of the noise and what's coming at you in order to hear that voice. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So then um, in order to hear that voice, I do meditation and mindfulness practices. Um, so I don't want to talk about each of these because they are uh, findable, right? You can Google mm -hmm. mindfulness or meditation and find uh, resources on it. Um, the next thing I have learned to do um, that I wish I knew to do earlier is to remain unmoved by these circumstances. So when it seems like all of the odds are against me, I know, and uh, especially because I was a foster kid and I did not have, as you did not have, that very basic understanding that we had people that loved us and people in our corner. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you don't have that, then you have to become that for yourself. And very often people get upset and they make a small problem bigger than it needs to be. They freak out. 
And I have learned that instead of freaking out, I get quiet, I listen to my voice, but I also know that everything kind of works out eventually, <laughs> right? So I'm kind of like, hmm, I wonder how this is going to work out. And I get very curious about how it's going to work out. And I'm interested to know, um, is it really that bad? Hmm. So I'm asking a lot of quality questions, right? Like what's great about the situation? Um, is there anything I can change about the situation? Is there anyone I know who's been through this before me who can give me some good counsel or some good advice or make some recommendations or introductions? Like, is there an expert that I can call upon or is there a, an expert who's written a book that I could read it, to help me to mitigate these circumstances or to make them better? Very interesting. So I find when I'm against, when I'm up against it, um, I've learned to, instead of freaking out, I get curious and quiet. So it sounds like you believe a lot in yourself and the process when you had mentioned the fact that, you know, just seeing how things will play out and knowing that it will, it will turn into something or similar to what you had envisioned before. Yeah, it never ends up being as bad as I thought that it was going to be. That's great. That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's worse, <laughs> but by the time it comes, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Right. I kind of take stock of it's like, Oh, you know, what's the thing that, 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 that goes wrong, right? Someone I care for is sick, but I can go in and I have flexibility. I'm an entrepreneur, right? I work for myself. I can go and spend time with them and, and nurse them, nurture them. Um, my daughter has been through a couple of traumatic situations, but she's alive. It could be worse. I have my husband to rely on, right? Like, so it's kind of like, it's not the worst that it could be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my mantras is the worst day is still only 24 hours long. That's a good way to, wow. It's a very good way to look at a day. It could be the worst day of my life, but tomorrow is another day. The sun is going to rise. New beginning. Yes. And I know for myself, um, and my family will attest to this <laughs> at any time. Um, I have an 18 year old daughter and a wonderful husband, um, that when I am in, and when I say I, I mean you, the listener, um, it is in your best state possible. The things that are coming at you do not seem as bad as when you are at, at the end of your rope. In other words, when you're tired, when, when all of your accounts are empty, your bank accounts, your emotional accounts, your physical accounts are empty. Hmm. Even if your bank accounts are low, if you have gotten, if you've had a good meal and you've had some rest, you'll be in a much better frame of mind than if you are broke and tired and hungry. So you control the thing that you can control, right? If you're hungry, mm -hmm. then have a cookie. <laughs> Right. I mean, I'm being only a little funny, right? It's like, if you're hungry, then have something nutritious. So your body has something to work with. If you're exhausted, then go rest. Don't make a decision when you are completely empty. Wait to, to make a decision or to give your final answer to something to when you have filled up some of your reserves. You mentioned your family a lot. I'm, I would like to know what kind of impact has you been in foster care had on you as, on the, as a parent? Oh, gosh. Um, you know what? I, I did not have the daily I love you and give me a hug. 
So um, I have, I give that. And I also ask my daughter what it is that she needs from me. And it's usually always the same thing. I want you to listen to me. I want you to love on me. I want you to hug me. I want you to spend time with me. You know, she, she would also like me to buy her a Mercedes, but, but, but the, but the, it's interesting because, um, as a parent, you want to give your kids everything and yet what they want is you. So our best times together when I was not doing as well financially, when I was a single mom and she was two, three, four, eight years old, the best times that we had together were just times that we were together at the park you know, having mother daughter movie night. Uh It wasn't me spending money on her. Although I was eventually able to do that. I was able to take her to to New York and see beauty and the beast on Broadway, which is not free. Um, but it wasn't the fact that I took her there. It was the fact that I took her somewhere and I was there with her. We were together. We could have gone to see a play in the park for no money. It was the fact that I was with her. I've always been curious to know how parents handle situations like those because you bring up a good point once again saying, you know, you had to give certain things to your daughter and you still do. How do you find that balance between just um, giving certain things and having them work for certain things? (laughs) I probably suck at it. Um, (laughs) I I guess Um... (laughs) the, the question is, you know, do you ever do you think about that? Like I always picture my dad whenever I ask help from my dad, you know, I can see it in his eyes that he processes the situation. He thinks, Mm -hmm. okay, is this something that he can solve on his own or does he Mm -hmm. act, does he truly need my advice because, you know, he came to me due to a barrier that he can't overcome. So I've always Mm -hmm. been trying to understand how do parents process that do they actually sit down and think, okay, here's a scenario, here's how it could work out? Or is it kind of just in the moment, like, okay, I'm just going to give, give, give. And then when that, you know, there is no manual. (laughs) There is no manual. And I don't think that I have figured it out a hundred percent, but I definitely, um, um, have overcorrected, I think in some ways, given her too many things too easily mm-hmm. because I wanted to make sure that she didn't want for anything. Um, but she's doing good. She's good. She's good. Gra- she's going to graduate. And you know what? She, she has not had any children herself and she does not have any addiction <laughs> that That's we good. know of. That's good. So, Right. I mean, I, I, you think, well, this person is, she's not valedictorian of her class and she doesn't have a full ride. You know, she's not the quarterback of the football team. She's a girl. Uh, But maybe she doesn't need to be, uh, she doesn't need to be those roles. She doesn't need to be, she doesn't. And she's, she's happy. She's happy. And she talks to me and she still wants to spend time with me. And I consider that a win a thousand percent. Yes. But their kids do not come with a manual. So you, there's no one size fits all right? Every kid is different from mm-hmm. what I understand. And so I got the kid that I got and, and I explained to her that I didn't, I did not have, I didn't have the parenting tools in my toolbox. So she is my one and only experiment and lucky for her and unlucky for her. <laughs> and we'll figure it out along the way. 
Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes along with featured stand-up and pick-up stories and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next week.